0: Take your Bible and turn to Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah chapter 8, we're going to read the entire chapter, but I'll do it with a little bit of pace, so follow along, please. Then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah, the son of uh, Jeberachiah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloah that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise over its channels, and go over all of its banks, and it will sweep into Judah, and it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered." Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, and it will not stand, for God is with us. For the Lord spoke thus to me, with his strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken, they shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching, to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for difficult passages. Let's stretch our minds that challenge our hearts to uh, submit to you. We ask that you would give us understanding. Even now we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Now, some of you in here, I know, have a bit of a disease. I mean, you probably don't label it that, but oh boy, is it. The disease of procrastination. Why do today when I can put off and do tomorrow, if at all? And where we are so slow to do the things that perhaps we need to do, and uh, so... um, reticent to actually get the things done that need to get done. In fact, for many of us, uh, we'll say things like, I know I've said, where I work best when I'm scared. And that usually just means I work best when I'm up against a deadline. We procrastinate until we can get our adrenaline up in order to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. The interesting thing about really that kind of idea of procrastination is, in some ways, it, it, it's an attempt to connect cause and effect in a way that really just stimulates our adrenaline. Whether or not you fill out your taxes in January or February or March or even the beginning of April, you have to get them done by a certain period or extend them and then do them later. But at some point, you're going to have to do them. But yet, we try to separate the cause and effect and say, well, I don't want to do it. 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 I don't want to Well, I got to do it now. And then we get it done. Students, you know what that's like in school when you study for a test, right? The material's been given to you for how many days, how many weeks, how many months, and you wait until the last possible minute, don't you? It's like almost in some sense, we learn more easily when it's right in front of our face. In fact, it might even be easier to say we learn in so many ways the easiest when cause and effect are like immediately connected, when our action and the consequence are immediately kind of go hand in hand, the problem is the vast majority of the most important lessons in life are not that way. Most often, the things that are most important, the things that are most significant, the things that shape us and our lives cause and effect or action and consequence are separated by days, months, years, perhaps even decades. We arrive at a situation a little bit like that here in Isaiah chapter 8. Now, you have to understand a little bit of what's been happening in chapter 7. In chapter 7, the beginning of chapter 7, we ran into a problem the king of Israel is having to figure out, or the king of Judah is having to figure out really what to do as the two nations to the north have formed an alliance and are getting ready to invade the southern kingdom. And they're like, oh, what's going to happen? And it's been this really kind of significant confrontation of what happens when our two significant enemies come hand in hand to invade our land. Are we, are we going to trust the Lord or are we going to handle it ourselves? And in fact, actually, God sends his prophet Isaiah and his son, Sheer-Jeshub, to go meet with the king and to tell the king, here's what God wants you to do, nothing. The Lord wants you to trust him and do nothing. The easiest command ever in the history of the Bible. I mean, not really, I get, not really, being a bit melodramatic, but really, I love those commands. What do I need to do to obey God right now? Nothing, nothing at all. That's all I have to do to obey the Lord. And that's really the situation the king is in. But does he do that? Well, no. In fact, tries to kind of negotiate another alliance, possibly with Egypt, possibly with Assyria, and tries to kind of work around what God's plans are. And chapter 8 picks up with really this kind of looming conflict in the background, What's going to happen, really, to the northern kingdom? What's going to happen to the southern kingdom? What's going to happen to all of God's people? And what's going to happen because God told them to trust him, and they didn't? What's going to happen? And it picks up with, now this is where Isaiah's ministry starts to get a little weird, and there's going to be some significant periods in the future where it's really weird. But this is the first of them. The Lord goes to him and says, take a a large tablet and write on it. Now, that large tablet is probably more than just a tablet. It would be kind of like maybe what we would think of as a street sign. Probably to be placed outside of his house so that everybody that walks by would be able to engage it and even told which language to write in, write in common characters that everybody that walks by can see this name written on it. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. One of the most kind of, you know, excellent sounding strong names in the scriptures, right? One of those that every young couple considers when they need to name their son, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Well, you have your footnote there in your English Bible, most likely, most of them will, which you can look down at the bottom, which means the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. There's lots of different versions of really what that is speed the spoil, uh, hasty prey, or quick the loot. Something. The the idea, in essence, that this kid, uh, the name that's being written on this kind of poster board, so to speak, uh, is a prophecy that destruction is impending, doom is coming. And you would think, oh, wow, something big is happening, right? The prophet of God has been called by God to put out this street sign saying, warning, the end is nigh. It's the end of time. Destruction awaits. All of the the sin that Ahaz, the king, has performed, all of the sin that Israel as a nation has performed, all of the sin that the people of God have performed are finally coming to bite them. It's finally coming a problem, and then immediately nothing happens. Nothing happens. In fact, verse 2, the Lord tells him that he's going to have two gentlemen, Uriah and Zechariah, come and actually uh, attest to it, kind of notarize it, for lack of a better word, so that it's proof that, hey, look, this is what the prophet has done. This is what the priest has signed off on. This is what's going to happen. and then nothing happens. In fact, actually, nothing happens. We have a a really, interestingly, in verses 3 and 4, we have a timeline for exactly how long nothing happens. Isaiah puts his street sign out for everybody to see, and then goes in and enjoys marital bliss with his wife, and she gets pregnant. Bears a child, which we have a fairly good idea how long that takes, And then, as the child is born, he gets the news. Hey, this street sign that you've had displayed outside in front of your house with this weird name written on it, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Oh, yeah, by the way, that's what you're supposed to name your kid. That's yours. That's your boy, Maher. It's going to be yours. You're going to have to find some sort of weird nickname to make it a little better. But even as you name this boy, You know, quickly comes destruction. That might be our paraphrase of it. Now the timeline is fixed. Verse 4, before the boy even knows how to speak. Before he's able to say, my father or my mother, destruction will descend upon the enemies of God. Oh, also his people, by the way. That judgment will come for sin, and interestingly, this is one of those kind of moments in Scripture where you get to see, like, you would hope the people of God would have figured it out at some point. Ahaz has already been talked to by the king in verse 7. He's already been promised the great sign of Emmanuel in chapter 7. He's already been promised coming destruction if he doesn't change his ways in chapter 7. And then now in chapter 8, he has this new sign. Now, maybe perhaps... Uh, He hasn't gotten it. We have the Bible to read, so it helps us understand that all of the names in the book of Isaiah, almost all of them, or at least Isaiah's family, are significant. Isaiah the prophet, his name is the Lord is salvation. And in chapter 7, the son that he brought with him the first time to meet the king, his name means a remnant will return. But now, the unfortunately named Maher Shalal Hashbaz, Destruction approaches now. And I think probably maybe a, a good lesson for us to contemplate as we think through these things is perhaps how easy it is for us to follow a kind of a pattern of thought not dissimilar to the Israelites in this time and even to the king uh, of Israel himself, King Ahaz, which is to really kind of mistake the Lord's patience for inactivity. You see, all of the book of Isaiah so far has been warning God's people that, look, sin has consequences. Sin brings consequences. Sin is a problem in every form. Sin is bad. And yet the Lord's people have consistently and constantly and steadily and strongly ignored that reality. You you could almost hear them saying, well, I mean, maybe it might happen, but it's not going to happen to me. I mean, sure, maybe this might bite us at some point, but probably not in my lifetime. I mean, sure, somebody will probably have to pay the piper, but will it really be us? They're presuming upon, really, the kindness of God. They're presuming upon the mercy of God because they are mistaking God's patience for inactivity. I love that that's really where you get to see kind of the Lord methodically working in chapter 8 with saying, hey, put this sign out front that everybody's going to get a chance to witness. Speedy comes the destruction. And then at least nine months later, a baby shows up, and the Lord says, that's him. Speedy comes the destruction. And then even the timeline is explained. This child, before he's able to talk, speedy will come the destruction. And verses 5 through 8 will explain exactly what that destruction looks like. It looks like a river at flood stage that bursts its banks and floods everything in its wake. Right, and many years ago you could have watched the, uh, some of those floods in the Midwest that were absolutely shocking. Remember those were like some of the levees or dikes or whatever along the side of the Mississippi burst and you had these entire like massive swaths of the country that were just underwater, just everything washed away. Or perhaps parts of Texas when we had those two huge hurricanes go through into things. That's the image that God is using as to what the destruction is going to look like. Sin is bad, and it's going to destroy the entirety of the land, the entirety of the people of God. Now, I suspect this is one of those points that you're like, well, Pastor Michael, I agree with that. I mean, honestly, why are you preaching this point? I agree that it's not good that we would mistake the Lord's patience for inactivity. It's not good that we would mistake the Lord's mercy for the Lord not caring about something. But the reality of the matter is, is I think that probably for so many of us is what allows us to kind of not consider sin from the proper perspective. Because that, again, the kind of action and consequence are so often separated, it lets us think that sin's not that big of a deal, that it's not that serious, that it doesn't matter that much, that it doesn't leave any lasting imprint on our minds. When I was in high school, uh, I was helping my parents do something downstairs. I don't remember even what the the task was, but I do remember that my parents were like, hey, can you go upstairs uh, and get Uh, we had a portable fan, you know, like one of the portable fans, the metal fan or whatever. And so I went running upstairs, knew exactly where it was, it was plugged into the wall. I just had to unplug it and, you know, carry it downstairs. Didn't even turn the light on, went running into the room, knew exactly what I was doing, reached down to grab the, you know, the, the fan to unplug it and didn't know because I didn't turn the light on, didn't actually look at what I was doing, that when I grabbed the plug, both of the metal prongs were exposed because the plug had fallen apart. So when I reached down to unplug the fan, I grabbed two pieces of metal that were directly connected to the current in the wall. And I grabbed them with all gusto and with all strength and held for a second, and watched every muscle in my body contract until I could let go. And then I remember standing there thinking, I don't really feel so good. I think I'm gonna lay down, and just went straight back on the bed and slept for 45 minutes. Came downstairs later, mom and dad were like, Where's the fan? I'm like, I don't know, man. I, don't, I have no idea. That is the last time I've actually messed with electricity in any form. I don't do anything related to electricity in my house. I do not wire anything. I do not put in new lights. I don't mess with anything connected to electricity, and I have not since I was in 10th grade and just about knocked my hair off. Why? because I had one very significant experience where the action and the consequence were so intimately connected that I knew I touched an outlet and I immediately almost threw up and had to take a 45 minute nap because it absolutely cooked me. I don't mess with that. It hurts, it's miserable. I don't like living that way, I hate that feeling. Out of all the feelings I've felt my entire life, electrocution not near the top of good ones, right? Things to avoid. But honestly, friends, how many of us presume upon the Lord's mercy and we forget that's exactly what sin is like? That we forget that's exactly what our pride is like, that we forget that's exactly what our hate is like, that we forget exactly that our covetousness is like, that our, uh, any aspect of our sin, our bitterness, our resentment, it's just as damaging It's just as devastating, it's just as destructive, it's just as corrupting and unpleasant. And yet, because the gap, we're we're equipped to presume that it isn't actually that bad. Well, okay, so first thing is really a warning for us to consider. We maybe need to be listening to the message that's delivered to the Jews right here, the Israelites, that maybe we need to be thinking about our sin, that maybe we need to be paying attention to when the Lord commands. But the reality of the matter is that there are times where, because we're going to learn the hard way, there are difficulties. We do get consequences. In fact, actually nations get consequences and cultures get consequences and sometimes even churches get consequences, institutions get consequences. Sin is destructive in its very nature. And I love how the transition kind of happens here. Verses 5 through 8 walk us through kind of the comprehensive destruction that will take place. It's like a a river that bursts its banks and floods everywhere so that it it destroys the entirety of the land. And then verses 9 and 10, you have this new idea introduced where verses 1 through 8 speak about the destructive nature of sin. And the way I kind of phrase that is not mistaking the Lord's patience for inactivity verses 9 and 10, offer side by side his promise. So that whereas you see the scary part of sin, you see the destruction of sin, you see the sweetness of God's presence and God's promise in verses 9 and 10, right? The destruction in verse 9, be broken, you peoples, be scattered. Everybody, all countries, listen, put on your armor. It doesn't matter. It's not going to help. One hill of beans, the Lord's going to destroy anybody and everybody that he wants to destroy. But No matter who stands against us, no matter who is arrayed against us, no matter who our enemies are, we will be victorious, for our God is with us. Our God is with us. If we are in Christ, if we are united to the triune God, uh, even our sin cannot ultimately separate us from God. Friends, this is where the good news comes in. So much of the book of Isaiah is written with God's promises being phrased largely in one idea. Now, there's lots of different ones that are going to come up, but one primary one, it seems like, which is the idea of the remnant, that God's destruction is going to come and destroy all of Israel. Eventually, it's going to destroy the northern kingdom, shortly after this, that's the Assyrian invasion, but then the southern kingdom eh, 100 years later or so, 140 years later or so, uh, with the Babylonians. But even as sin gets punished and as God's people are destroyed and as Israel is destroyed and as Jerusalem is destroyed, there's this lingering promise in the background that the Lord will never leave his people. He'll never leave his people. He's promised to them, he promised to take care of them, he's promised to be with them, he's promised to dwell with them, even interestingly that mentioned in passing at the end of verse 8, O Emmanuel, that God will dwell with his people. This idea of the remnant is largely what's then taken up in the New Testament as explained in the context of the church. That while the entirety of the Jewish nation largely turned away from the triune God and largely turned away from the arrival of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, that Jesus would save for himself a people, a people like you and a people like me, that he would redeem for himself a people, that he would go to the cross and in doing so would take our sins to the cross so that all the scary things in verses 1 through 8 that you deserve and all the scary things in verses 1 through 8 that I deserve, all of the scary things, the consequences of sin, the electrocution of evil, are forgiven in Christ. That even our enemies cannot conquer us, even the grave itself, even death itself, even hell itself, even God's judgment, interestingly, cannot conquer us if we are in Christ. Now, I suspect that for many of us, again, it's this same kind of experiment as the previous point where intellectually we get it. Like, Michael, I know this. I know God is with me. He's been with me through hard times. He's been with me through thick and thin. I know that God is with me. He's promised me that. But there's also a big difference between head and heart and largely when it comes time to talking about sin and specifically our sin. Right? It's very easy for me to understand that God is with us when I'm talking about your sin. That's very easy. It costs me very little actually to talk about God's promises when it's your sin. Oh, it's something different when it's mine though, isn't it? It's something very different when I actually have to spend the energy and the effort to claim God's promises as mine to say that I can be forgiven in Christ, and in fact, even if I am in Him now, I already have been forgiven in Christ. I think honestly, again, just humbly as a a pastor who's watched these sorts of things, I think that's partially why we don't do a very good job about talking about confession of sin We tend to be a people that do not confess our own sin very well, and I suspect the reason why we do not confess our own sin very well is largely because we do not actually believe that God is with us when we do. We believe he's with other people, but maybe not us. Maybe not us. Well, I love it. In verse ten, we have God's promise that He's with His people; He'll never leave them; He'll never forsake them. The remnant will be victorious. There will be a remnant. Sheer Jeshub. We saw it in the previous chapter. A remnant will return. Now, in the rest of the chapter, verses nine—I mean, verses eleven through uh, twenty-two—is where we get to see really a glimpse as to what God's values are. We get to see a glimpse in terms of, okay, for those people, for that remnant, what are they supposed to be like? How are they supposed to live? How are they supposed to think and feel and act? What kind of people are they supposed to be? Verses 11 through 15 show that first part of what these kind of people are supposed to be, and they are supposed to be the kind of people who have a changed heart, who've been made new from the inside not just the out. Verse 11, the Lord speaks to Isaiah and says, don't walk according to the ways of this people. These people are a mess. They are the problem. They are not trusting me. They're not living according to my ways. And even when they do, this is something you're going to see through the prophets all throughout here, even when they do act obediently, the Lord hates it because their hearts are not in it. This is why you're going to hear recurring themes of like, I don't really like your sacrifices. They're, you know, awful to me. They're an abomination. Why? Because their hearts aren't in it. So instead of walking the way these people walk, Isaiah is to be different. He's not supposed to worry about the political conspiracies that are probably going to destroy the land because that's none of his business to worry about. It's not his business to be afraid of what they're being afraid of. It's not his business to live in a sense of dread the way that they are living in a sense of dread. Instead, verse 13, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary for you. I love that. Like The contrast is of a man who's not so concerned with an exterior checklist of things to do and how to be, but instead here the prophet is called to be a man whose heart is turned to the Lord. Trusting in him, delighting in him, hoping in him, fearing In him, resting in him. And again, this is, I think, perhaps something that's very easy for us to try to do, is to try to reduce our understanding of Christianity to that list of checks of what it is and what it isn't. And interestingly, most of the time, if we're really going to be honest, the list of checks that we reduce our Christianity to are really just the things that we do best and other people do worst. My checklist of what it means to be a good Christian usually looks like the things that I do better than you because then it makes me feel better about myself, then it makes me feel better about you because then you can be the bad people and I can be the good people. And this is how we operate in our Christianity. And interestingly, again, what's God getting at? It's a change of heart. It's a heart that instead is delighting in God, a heart that's trusting in God, a heart that's not, 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 trying to reduce the Christianity to a checklist, but instead reshaping it into a relationship of love and hope and joy and peace. Now, the good news of the gospel is this, friends, that the Lord loves His people. And in fact, actually, He loves His people so much that there is absolutely nothing in creation that can separate you from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. And that actually includes you yourself. I love that. That's so comforting. That God loves his people so much that even we can't get in the way. Because friends, the truth of the matter is, I would have a hundred times over, a thousand times over, I would have gotten in the way, but instead his love is even bigger than that. But That does not mean that we get to sit back and twiddle our thumbs and say, well, if God's in charge of it all, I just get to wait and see whatever he does. I'm just going to kind of hmm, prop my feet up, put my head back, maybe take a little nap, and just wait and see how I grow. Maybe I'll just wait and see what God does. Maybe I'll wait and see how, you know what? I'll, I'll put my Bible as my pillow and see if I can absorb it through osmosis. Because if God's in charge, that could work. I guess it could. Interestingly, verses 16 through 22, the prophet actually gives, I think, a better response. If you follow the logical flow, it's really wonderful that sin is bad in verses 1 through 8, that God's promises are true in Christ in verses 9 and 10, that the Lord loves a changed heart in verses 11 through 15. And then 16 through the rest of the chapter is go work hard at obedience. Go work hard at obedience. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you all of these evil things... I'm not going to believe it. I'm going to listen to the Word of God. I'm going to obey the Word of God. I'm going to be committed to the Lord. I'm going to follow the Lord. I'm going to obey and rejoice in so much as I am able. I love the logical flow that is in chapter 8. Sin is bad. God is good. (laughs) He changes hearts. Now go work hard. Now I, I will readily admit there's probably a significant portion of us in the room that the idea of go work hard at our faith is a bit scary for a number of reasons. I'll probably answer a couple of them and try to defeat them a little bit along the way, right? It might be scary because we don't trust him. And okay, I understand that. The problem is, is in order for you to not trust God, you have to say in some fashion that you can do a better job than him, and that's really what it ha- comes down to. Is in order to not trust the Lord at some point you have to be willing to say I can do a better job than he can. I can figure it out better than he can. And the simple defeater to that is just look at the last 6 months or a year or 2 years of your life. That's all it takes is for you to actually consider your own life, have you done a very good job of it? And have you done a better job than God? That usually puts that one out of the way pretty quickly. Some of us actually instead will say, well, I don't want to do this because it'll mean I have to give up my fun. I don't have to give up the things that I don't want to give up. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's exactly the way that you, it's exactly what you have to do. Because you're delighting in things that are disgusting and awful and evil and gross you're delighting in the things that are destructive. Some of us want to do this. We want to labor in commitment to Christ, but honestly, we, we don't even really know what it looks like. It's like, I want to be that. I want to be that guy or I want to be that, that gal. I just, I just don't know what it looks like. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about the philosophy of ministry of this church is really we try to teach you with everything we do. Word, sacrament, prayer, and fellowship. That's it. Those are the things you do. Now, um, sometimes it takes a little bit of uh, creativity to figure out how those things work for you. Okay, word, do I just read the Bible by itself? Or do I, you know, go read another book alongside it to help me understand? Or... Do I read my Bible in the morning or do I read my Bible in the evening? Do I read it with somebody or by myself? Okay, great, yeah, ask those questions. The sacraments, I don't even know what they are. Well, okay, great, (laughs) pay attention in about 10 minutes. Prayer, well, I, I struggle to pray. Well, okay, great. Let's have that conversation. Let's talk about that and figure out how to help you grow in your commitment to Christ and grow in your prayer. Because realistically, Word, Sacrament, Prayer prayer is all done, in theory, within the confines of fellowship. That's actually the design, hopefully, is that you don't have to figure any of it out by yourself. Hmm. Almost everybody in the room, really save one, has somebody older than them in here. Somebody who's been a Christian longer than them in here and have opportunity to learn from how somebody's been doing this for 50, 60, in some cases, maybe 70 years of walking with Jesus so that we don't have to do it by ourselves. Going back to where we started, I acknowledge this is, I think, in many ways, uh, plays upon human weakness in a terrible fashion. Because just as the consequences of sin are often separated from the act of sin, oftentimes really the riches of spiritual growth are separated or at least the feeling of those growth are separated from the actions of growth. It's really interesting. A lot of times that you have to put in days or weeks or months or years of Bible study and then suddenly you're down the road and going, wow, everything makes sense so much differently. We put in the hard work for the blessings that follow. Maybe as you spend your afternoon this afternoon either with friends or family, uh, hopefully taking a nap and thinking through a little bit of the nature of what it means to be a Christian, I would encourage you to take just a brief moment and contemplate kind of that order, right? Sin is bad. The Lord's promises are good. He wants a changed heart, and I should be committed and examine, really, where do you line up in relationship to that? Do I actually believe that sin is bad, or maybe I don't believe that God is good, or maybe I believe those things, but I don't really want a changed heart, or even if I do, I'm not really willing to work at it. Be honest with yourself so that you can then have a conversation with the Lord and be honest with Him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this spiritual food of Your Word that we are able to enjoy together. And we pray now, Lord, that You would equip us to even share a more richer food in some sense as we feast upon Christ Himself at the table. Would You bless us now as we sing to You and prepare to feast with You. For Christ's sake, amen.